Hello and welcome to Tickets, a podcast series exploring the future of live experiences. Each episode, we take you behind the scenes with the visionaries, producers and operators delivering some of the most vital and innovative experiences around. From Broadway theatre to international boxing, virtual reality to retail. Tickets aims to join the dots between disciplines, share knowledge and new ideas and better understand what goes into bringing these experiences to life. My name's Howard Gray. I'm the founder of H Bureau, a specialist consultancy practice helping media, entertainment and experience companies grow. The numerous challenges facing venues of all shapes and sizes have been well documented over the past few years. So how do you go about creating a new place for arts and music in one of the world's most competitive real estate markets? Drew Chopper is one of three co-founders of Elsewhere, a 24,000 square foot space in New York that opened at the end of 2017. After a childhood playing in a wide range of bands, Drew spent five years as an investment manager at Capricorn before making the move to start his journey with Elsewhere. Listen on for Drew's insights into fundraising, managing risk, making the most of data, and the three key pillars for local talent to thrive. Enjoy. Thank you for being on the podcast today. It's great to have you here. My pleasure. Um, thank you very much for inviting me into your apartment. We're, we just we were going to do this interview in the, elsewhere. But we thought uh, it's probably not the quietest place to be doing podcast recordings. There's always something happening. Always some sort of noise. So there's no way that we were going to get a clean cut. So we're here on a Wednesday morning in your apartment, drink, drinking some nice tea, mm-hmm. uh, feeling quite quite mellow and, and chill. So it's a nice space to do it. Unfortunately, on a very Gray and miserable New York morning, but we can't can't have everything. I like it. <laughs> you like That's it. probably why I'm still in New York. <laughs> um, let, let's get started with a little bit about your your background. Sure. Um, how did you get started in maybe this role? But then, if we go way back, I know you're from India originally. How did yeah. you get from from India to New York, and then from New York into what you're you're doing now? So I was born in Bombay, India. It was still Bombay back then, and. Uh, I lived in this apartment with my parents, my dad's two parents, grandparents, and my dad's youngest brother. And uh, as far back as I can remember, there's always music in the house, music of all uh, sorts. And uh, I remember even my dad telling me that, you know, back in when he was a kid, his parents were the only ones in the neighborhood that sort of allowed him to have all sorts of crazy Western music, Inigata Davida, all sorts of heavy rock stuff. And so just a musical family going back generations, music aficionados anyway. And then my dad's youngest brother, who I lived with, my cha-cha, he, uh, he was a musician and is a musician. He, uh, he sang classical sort of um, Urdu shairi or Persian shairi called guzzles and shairi is like poetry so uh, I just remember you know coming home listening to everything from that to um, rock and roll to jazz and uh, just that's that's just what we did and even when I, when I was four years old I went to my first concert it was uh, Brian Adams India tour in 1994 right. uh, actually I wasn't uh, it was been 1991 and uh yeah, we just uh, had, a, had an amazing time, and I think that's just something that's always stuck with me. I've been playing guitar since I was four years old, before I could read or write, and taking music lessons, and then uh, moved to the States when I was eight, and 
just got really more and more into rock and jazz. I mean, uh, one of my first, the first album that I remember purchasing for myself was Jimi Hendrix's Band of Gypsies when I was like 11 or 12 years old, and then getting into Coltrane, Miles Davis. And uh, when I moved here shortly thereafter, um, my current business partner, one of my oldest and best friends in the world, Jake Rosenthal, he moved in right next door. And we started a band with our other friend and just kept playing music and then uh, kept, I, I got deeper and deeper into jazz. Um, and that was really it, you know, as I was playing the tenor sax, I was playing guitar and I was going to school and I was just eating and breathing music every moment I could. And then at some point, um, my trajectory sort of veered off. You know, I was pretty disillusioned. I was playing rather professionally in high school and in jazz. And it sort of uh, became clear to me that I didn't want to be a professional in jazz or in music. I got pretty disillusioned with the scene. I also liked the fact that my brain was sort of accessing different things between school and music and all the other uh, things that I was doing at that time. And I didn't want to just be uh, I couldn't handle just being uh, the, the dedication that it would take to be a musician with, uh, you know, the understanding that I was probably never going to be one of the greats. So I ended up uh, getting into Yale, studying economics, and really fell in love with this concept of um, human behavior and how that affects markets and economies. And from that also starting get got really early on into this concept of how um, investments and pools of capital can sort of affect positive change. Um, so I started working with uh, various large endowments and, um, again, these large institutional pools of capital that were investing um, in a very, let's say, commercial or high finance sort of way, but we're also uh, backing projects like clean food, clean water, clean energy, um, a lot of things that were uh, supporting foundations. So right out of school, I ended up working with Capricorn Investment Group. I loved working there, um, worked there for almost five years. And that was Jeff Skoll's family office. And Jeff Skoll was a big promote, proponent, of, probably the largest proponent of social entrepreneurship. Uh, he founded the Skoll Foundation, which is like the Davos for social entrepreneurship. He founded uh, Participant Media, which was putting out movies like uh, Inconvenient Truth, uh, Waiting for Sierra, um, all sorts of things that uh, we're trying to, uh, basically this whole thing was, let's take various approaches to spurring positive change in the world. And Capricorn managed his wealth, but uh, tried to sort of emulate or otherwise support the efforts of the foundation and the uh, movie business. And so wherever we could, I mean, of course we had to um, sort of preserve and increase his wealth so that he could continue all his efforts, but the idea was also to try to invest, you know, we were early investors in Tesla, we were early investors in SpaceX, we did a lot of clean food, clean energy, clean water. So I was in this position where I was using my skill set, my network and sort of capital markets in order to support the projects that I believed in um, at a very, again, sort of um, rigorous commercial rate and still competing with other investors in that market. Uh, so that was my professional life. In my personal life, I was every day going to concerts that were thrown by Jake and Rami, my two business partners. So, so you were in New York at this point. Did you you came out of Yale and moved straight into New York and started working at Capricorn? Yeah, I did a small stint in Philadelphia, and then I mean, I was pretty miserable. Nothing against Philly, but I realized that in the back of my mind, it was always New York or bust. I mean, even when I was living in Bombay, uh, all the artists that I was listening to, I mean, you know. Um, 
Jimi Hendrix live at the Fillmore East, uh, you know, thinking about uh, all the, the punk movement that was coming out of the East Village and uh, the downtown, the Bowery scene, CBGB. I mean, that was always front and center in my mind. And then, of course, as a jazz guy, you know, just New York was the epicenter of everything. So I and I think that somewhere that subconsciously was a guiding hand in everything I was doing. And I didn't really get that until I got to Philly and I realized just how miserable I was and how much I wanted to be in New York. Um, so, yeah, I finally I, I got my. I clawed my way to New York and uh, just, you know, been happy as a clam ever since. Never looked back. So you, you said that um, on on the personal side when you were a mm-hmm. Capricorn, you started going out to shows. Were you still, were you still playing? Were you still playing in bands at that point? Um, I wasn't. I think I, I sort of, I still play. I mean, you know, to this day, I, I've sort of put down the saxophone, but something the other, you know, I play piano. I uh, just took up the mandolin. And uh, I played probably a handful of concerts here and there in New York on the side, but I think that I, I got kind of all in or all out when I do sort of things. And so uh, it was it was something that I never really wanted to pursue professionally. It was I was happy to do it as a hobby and see other people succeed in that profession. So you said that you've been friends with Jake a long, long time. Um, so yeah. you started going to shows. His, was it shows he was promoting or you were just going out together yeah. as friends? Yeah. So even, so I went to Yale, Jake went to NYU and his freshman year roommate was Rami Haykal, our third partner. Randomly assigned, just stars aligned and those two, I used to come down and visit them all the time from New Haven and uh, we used to go to shows, you know, and his other roommates were in bands and that was their scene. And I was just sort of, it, it was everything I imagined, you know, we would be uh, romping around the East Village, coming out to Williamsburg, going to Bushwick. And uh, it was just a, a lot of fun. And those two guys, they started Pop Gun Presents, our booking and promotion company, out of their college dorm room in 2008. They started doing shows here and there, uh, just convincing bands and agents to, to play convincing venues that they had bands and agents uh so sort of this impossible chicken and egg situation that they figured out somehow and uh they just were putting on great events um and that sort of snowballed one here and there uh two a month three a month one a week uh and that escalated within a year to doing a year or two to doing something like seven to nine shows a week and uh, so, so I was constantly going to their events. I remember going to the first Pop Gun show. Um, and once Pop Gun started snowballing, they got a foothold in a venue called Glasslands. And Glasslands at the time in 2008, 2009, was really just this sort of uh, bombed out art shelter in, uh, on the waterfront in Williamsburg, which is now the vice offices and the massive condos. But back then, it was like you know, it was just completely off the beaten path. It was gray, it was dusty, and it was just all sorts of crazy mayhem of art and music that was happening. And they were basically brought on to try to professionalize, not professionalize, because that was not really the concept, but try to do more with music in that space. And it very quickly became clear to the owners that these guys were building something that was way bigger than what the owners had ever imagined. And they, and so Jake and Rami, Popgun really put Glasslands on the map when it comes to music. You had so many firsts there. I mean, Lana Del Rey's first show ever, early MGMT shows, uh, Disclosure's first U.S. debut. They were, you know, uh, <laughs> Pitchfork was just every every week or every day was something about Glasslands, you know? So it was sort of the venue to watch if you wanted to see the next big thing. Um, and so... Yeah, I was going to popcorn shows. I was going to Glasslands all the time. I moved to Williamsburg very quickly. I've been in the same apartment since 2010. And uh, that was it, you know. It was um, 
that that was my entire personal life basically so when the guys um and i would sort of be uh, arms like advisor to them right so they eventually very quickly actually purchased glasslands from the owners and they came to me they're like okay how do we think about this purchase how do we think about structuring the deal how do we think about paperwork how do we think about performance and so even then, you know, they had the foresight to think that, okay, this is, we are, you know, best in class when it comes to independent music. And, you know, we are truly living this lifestyle, but we have to figure out now how to run this business. And I was in a very good position to help them. You know, I was running the deal teams at at Capricorn. And uh, I was uh, on the board of several companies. I'd seen, you know, thousands of companies pitch to me. I'd, I'd, I'd analyzed hundreds of companies. So, um it was like the perfect thing for me, for all of us. It was like, okay, let me use what I know in order to, again, support another business that I love. So um, that was our sort of arm's length relationship up until, let's say, 2012. And at that point, Glasslands, you know, was a 300 capacity venue and it was just full all the time. So they needed a bigger space. You know, they had relationships with artists that were that were, you know, 10 times, uh, 30 times bigger than what they could fit in Glasslands. And so Popgun also grew like that. They, they, Popgun wasn't just um, relegated to Glasslands. Now they had all these relationships. They could do shows all over the city with these artists. And and that's what we did, and they did at the time. But the, the downside of doing that is that you don't, excuse me, control the experience for your audiences and for your artists. So it's not really, there are challenges in which, you know, you can't really, um, offer the artists and the audience the the level of excellence or the type of style that you would want to. So it was time to build bigger. And that's when they came to me and they said, listen, it's time to build a bigger venue. And I said, yeah, obviously. And uh, they said, would you want to join the team? And I said, yeah, obviously. So by 2012, we'd started planning elsewhere. By 2014, I'd quit my job. And yeah, that was the beginning. So you spent 2012 to 2014 with the guys planning this this out this new space um what was the was there a point where you felt now's the time because you, you know you're jumping from investment management in yeah in the city to a different a whole different type of investment well i think it wasn't just my call all three it was very organic you know there was never i don't think there was ever a question when we had to sort of make that jump it just sort of happened seamlessly you know we would spend our nights here, our weekends here. Actually, I lived in that the bigger room of this apartment at the time. I've sort of lived in every single room in here. Um, and uh, yeah, we would just hole up in there and, and plan um, whenever we got the time. And I think early days, it was sort of slow planning, conceptualizing, really took our time to make sure we had the vision correct, the mission correct, we had uh, the strategy correct. We were also collecting a lot of data at Glasslands um, every single day in terms of, okay, ticket prices, uh, drink prices, how much people are spending, spending habits by genre, um, uh, attendance by day of the week, night of the year, um, how much are we spending on our back end, on artists, on payroll, every little line item. And so really using that to think about how does this scale um, with the goal of always being how, how does the business help us um, support, shift, evolve emerging culture. Um, and, and, and so the business was just a tool to make that happen. And I think it took us a couple years just, you know, the guys were super busy. That was the heyday of Glasslands. Um, I was super busy and it just sort of happened organically. And by 2014, I think we were all ready and it was just this natural 
progression. I don't even think many words were spoken. What was the kind of original blueprint? What did the original vision look like? And, and what were some of the, the assumptions you made from going from that blueprint to creation? And how did that, those shift yeah. over time? So the core has never changed. The core has always been, how do you, again, support music? And how do you support the cultural evolution of sort of uh, music, art, and, and culture in general? Uh, and I think that's to us what's always been what we love about the music scene and about music venues. I mean, we've grown up going to music venues since, you know, we were four or five years old, all of us. And I think uh, ultimately music is sort of at this uh, at this most fundamental sort of music venues are at this most fundamental ecosystem of cultural change. You need the artists, you need the artists practice spaces and you need the artist performance spaces. Um, and so without that sort of holy trinity, you don't um, really you know, have the ability to create cultural change at the music or arts level. Um, so we were always excited by that spirit uh, to be able to take risks on artists, to be able to experiment with artists, to be able to work with both local as well as uh, international and other national artists. Um, to be able to be cross-genre, to be able to do live music as well as electronic music, to be able to do both music and art. Remember, Glasslands always had this visual um, or otherwise um, a tangible art um, focus. And, uh, you know, if you look back, you know, we're sort of um, students of, of club history and, and venue history. All the great venues in New York and London and San Francisco in Miami, wherever it might be in the 60s, 70s, 80s, they were all places where you had a multitude of genres, of types of people, patrons who come, of artists that are both in musical and other mediums. And that's why you had all this, this massive proliferation of art and culture uh, in these periods of time surrounded in these various musical scenes, you know, CBGB, Paradise Garage, Area Club, Fabric, the Hacienda. Um, so we... Uh, that was always the core philosophy. What changed was, well, originally Elsewhere was supposed to be like a 600, 750-person venue that sat on top of Glasslands. So we sort of had this very loose vertical integration thing happening where you had Popgun that did the in-house booking, marketing, uh, production. Then you had Glasslands, which was the venue for the emerging artists. And then when those artists grew, we were going to put them at Elsewhere. What happened was halfway through 2014, we were already sort of halfway through our fundraise, uh, we had to shut Glasslands down. Well, they had to shut Glasslands down. Jake and Rami owned and ran the place. And uh, by that time, the, well, what happened was, you know, this, this large, what is now Vice came in, took over the entire block, and it became clear that we weren't going to be able to coexist. So we had about six months to get out. And uh, of course, the emotional uh, stress and the stress of having to wind down a business notwithstanding, we now had to, we now had a plans for a larger venue that was sort of the second rung in the ladder without the first rung. So we quickly adapted to that. We expanded the footprint. We said, okay, you know what? Why don't we have this bigger room at Elsewhere? And then we can also uh, create a smaller room to mimic Glassland so that we have this emerging artist space, this experimental space. And then we said, okay, well, you know what? We should also have this like separate 
chill out lounge area because like well if you're coming to elsewhere there's no seats or anything in like a music performance room and we also do a lot of electronic music and it's nice to be able to go to another room and chill out and it's also you know nice to be able to come there maybe when there's not a show happening and now that allows us to be at the center of this community even when there isn't a show happening because ultimately elsewhere is supposed to be this this cultural uh, meeting grounds for people of various backgrounds and then we said, well, now, you know, we've, we've got this structure, but like, we're not doing anything with the roof, so we might as well add a roof. So elsewhere went from this 750 person idea to this 1600 person idea really quickly. And that forced us to adapt in a lot of ways. You know, we, uh, we had to renegotiate our lease terms. We had to raise more money. We had to redo our plans. Um, and all of a sudden, you know, we had a much bigger project on our hands and we figured, listen, we're all in. It takes the same amount of thinking, dedication, um, you know, attention, stress, everything. So let's just let's just do it. Did you notice much pushback from stakeholders during that time when you're you're adding roofs and extra rooms and changing the business plan and changing the models? Well, you know, all of that really happened within the course of a year, and it really took us almost three or four years to raise all the money we needed so it was a constantly evolving thing and you know we knew that this being our first raise um our first serious fundraise that we were going to have to be investor friendly and so we've continued to do that and i think you know we've continued to try to do right by our investors if any investors are listening i hope you agree um we and i think that uh, you know we haven't really had uh, much pushback you know we've had delays we've had a lot of problems but you know, I think uh, this is also where a lot of the lessons I learned from the um, investment industry have helped me out, which is you know, one of the the, uh, the greatest principles you can adhere to is that you can always change your business. It's almost impossible to change your business partners and just about impossible to change your investors. So choose wisely. So we did that. We chose wisely. We stuck to our principles and the fundraising um, experience and, and the whole process. We turned investors away who we thought were not going to be sort of um, good stewards of our vision and not going to be good uh, investment partners. And I think that has really, really paid dividends because everybody that we have right now believes in us, supports us. And, um, you know, I think we've got a really great group of investors and I really think of them as sort of investment partners in your own way. Uh, I really love what you said earlier about at Glasslands, you guys were looking at the data a lot. Mm -hmm. And I think Maybe that's changing in the last three, four years a little bit, but I've, I've found historically in this space, people don't tend to pay that much attention to, to the numbers, let's say, or, the, or at least the, anal the analytic side. Um, maybe with that in mind, could you explain the process of getting a venue open from idea to, to launch night and where, and where the, maybe the numbers helped you and where they perhaps took you down the garden path a little bit as well on occasion, if mm -hmm. at all? Yeah, so, you know, of course, this isn't anything like uh, like big data uh, applications here, but you're right to say that most small and medium-sized businesses, I think, are launched by people that have a vision about the product and or are very good on the marketing, communication, community side of things, but perhaps most often don't really uh, have that operational back end or have an operations person who's thinking about efficiencies, who's thinking about, um, let's even just call it, you know, accounting analytics and thinking about um, how do you tighten up the back end in order to make the front end better. 
And I think that, you know, Jake and Rami had that wherewithal in the very beginning to say, okay, you know, how do we... Because look, at the end of the day, Glasslands, for the for the majority of its existence, sold $4 beers and, you know, less than $10 tickets. That's a very difficult uh, way to have a profitable business. And yet they survived for many, many, many years. And I think that you can only do that when you are harnessing those efficiencies and you can only figure out where those efficiencies lie if you have even just basic data management. So... Uh, so that was the first way in which that that really helped us. How it parlayed into what we're doing now was, uh, you know, you know, when you ask me, it took us from 2012 to 2014. We were building a financial model on the back end, and we were using Glassland's data to inform how a larger business would would function. And I think that for the most part, it has been uh, really, really informative and relatively accurate. The where it has sort of not led us astray or maybe let us down a little is that on the construction side of things, you know, we hadn't, um, we, Glassline's data gave us a very good insight into how uh, the business would operate at steady state or even on the upswing because Glassline's grew tremendously from the beginning to the end. But uh, construction was something we'd never done before. And we'd identify that as the biggest risk. You know, we talked to investors about it. Uh, we were open about it. Um, it's just we didn't have the background and we didn't have the uh, the data. So we talked to a lot of people. You know, we talked to other business owners. We, we hit up people that were in the construction industry. We read everything we could and we tried to figure out basically, uh, we talked to architects, architect friends, and just try to figure out, you know, what kind of number we need and then slap a massive uh buffer or discount on our expectations because we just don't know what we're talking about. And I think that um, given the expansion that elsewhere went through uh, after we figured out the glass lines had to shut down and uh, the delays and the issues that we did face in the first year or so, um, you know, that number had to expand, um, which is just an old story in construction. You know, somebody once told me, double the money and square the time and it's just unfortunately so damn true did you um did you know what site you were going with at this stage because obviously you had to pick a site at some point did you have a number of sites in mind and were were looking at the construction budget across all of those or had you already nailed down the the place that you really wanted this to, to be at we had not um we didn't nail down a place until february 2015 um, sorry, we signed the lease 20, February 2015. We knew the place by, let's say, about October, November 2014. That process in and of itself took us 18 months. We started... To, to secure the space. To find the right place and secure it. And uh, again, one of those things that we started early on in 2012, 2013, just start looking in your spare time. Then you start to develop relationships with brokers you like or developers you like. And uh, ultimately, we met our current landlord and uh, it quickly became apparent that I think we both had a shared vision and that uh, we would be able to create uh, ultimately a landlord-tenant relationship in its in its best form is a partnership. And we felt that we were both looking at it that way. Um, and so it took us, we once we, found, once we found our current landlord and we developed that relationship, we started going around 
looking at properties specifically with our project in mind. And that made all the difference. Uh, no longer are you sort of going into someone's space and saying, okay, well, you know, the landlord saying, all right, this is what it is. Like, don't bother me too much. All of a sudden we had a landlord that said, hey, let's go find the right property together and we'll, we'll be your landlords. We'll take care of the property. Uh, you know, you guys will, uh, will operate the business. And now that really narrowed the search. And, but it still took eight months just with that landlord after the relationship to find the property that we, we, we landed on. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's a long process. Not only do you have to find the property, but then you have to negotiate. They, the landlord has to negotiate with the current owner to buy the place. There's all sorts of, um, you know, that's, that's a long negotiation process. And then we have to negotiate with the landlord to uh, negotiate our lease, which is a long process. So it's, to do it right, it's easily an 18-month to two-year process. So before we started recording, uh, we were having a chat about uh, law, amongst other things, and uh, the fact that you got you guys have got lawyers across a number of areas for the business. There's, I think it's easy for people on the outside to just assume that a venue is really just book some bands, sell some beers, keep the cash, and put it in the bank. You know, it's, It seems like a very simple business, but right. there's a lot going on underneath. Can you maybe just get into... Yeah. Some of the, the logistics and the operational side of, of what goes into running a venue of this of this scale in a, in a city like New York. Right. And so, so by the way, just um, my favorite venues and our favorite venues, you know, like I said, Hacienda, Area Club, CBGB, all the places that we grew up revering and reading about and nerding out on, they were just a guy with an idea who... Uh, you know, throwing up shows with his buddies and that snowball and selling beers and just complete mayhem, right? And I think that the romantic side of me still wishes it was like that because that's where you had this this wellspring of art and culture that came out of this mayhem. But that doesn't work in New York anymore. Um, and I think the writing was on the wall around 2012 to 2015 when, and still today, venues are shutting down left and right. I mean, you know, London experiences this. Uh, it's about a 20% shutdown rate a year on independent music spaces. And uh, there's a lot of initiatives that we're doing that we're trying to take part in both politically and um, otherwise to try to change that. But the reality is, is that this the, the heyday of the artist or the artist friend with a vision opening up a space for artists is no longer viable. And so elsewhere was conceived with this idea that we would be championing best practices in independent music with this vision of supporting and cultivating cultural evolution and growth, along with best practices in business because we want to be around in 20 years. And it's that simple, you know, it's not like we enjoy the corporate rigmarole, it's just a necessity to survive. And so towards that end, um, you know, the back end has really been structured in order to um, in order to make that happen. Now you have to uh, fundraise. That requires securities attorneys. That's attorneys number one. Then you need to uh, find a spot. Like I said, it took us 18 months. And then you have to negotiate a lease. So those are now uh, real estate attorneys. Then you have to uh, hire a contractor. And, you know, in construction, whatever can go wrong will go wrong. So you really do need a strong contract if you're doing if, to protect yourself. So now you need construction attorneys. Then you need to protect your intellectual property. Um, so IP attorneys, trademark attorneys, that's attorneys four and five. Then you need to get a liquor license. That's uh, liquor attorneys, attorneys number six. Uh, you need to build a team that's properly trained and uh, documented and uh, contracted. So that's HR attorneys, number seven. 
you need to create all sorts of uh, documents with counterparties. So that's now corporate lawyers, uh, attorneys number eight. Um, and I'm sure as you know, the list sort of goes on and on. And just the way that legal practice has evolved, you know, there are specialties in, in every attorney has their specialty and you have to have this very deep and narrow knowledge. So yeah, there's a lot of attorneys on, on, on retainer. And the benefit of that I think is obvious, which is just a strong, you know, come what may, we've done our best to protect ourselves against these quote-unquote tail risk scenarios um, and establish best practices. I think attorneys really hone your thinking in a lot of different ways. But the downside is the fundraising element. And I think, you know, again, not to harp on fundraising too much, but that process took us many, many more years than it would uh, a normal business uh, in our, traditionally anyway, in our industry. You know, we don't. Uh, we didn't have like one or two uh, family members or, or you know key investors that funded the whole thing. We spoke to over 350 people just in the first nine months of fundraising. Um, that means multiple conversations. So we were having multiple breakfasts, lunches, dinners with folks. I mean, it was like we documented all of this. It was like 1,200 to 1,500 conversations in nine months. And I mean, you know, when they say that uh, in order to start a business, you should really love what you do. If nothing else, it's because it's all you're going to talk about. It's all you talk about at parties. It's all you talk about with family. It's all you talk about with friends, with your business partners, especially when your two of your closest friends are your business partners. I mean, you got to be damn well sure that you like the people that you're working with and that you have an ability to work together and not just hang out together and that you're okay talking about your business all the damn time. Yeah, I think that's an important distinction. Um, being friends is one thing. Being business partners and friends can be quite another. And it's, yeah, being... You can have great fun hanging out, but spending yeah. all your days and weekends together working on a, on a venture such as this is, I imagine it can be hard. I mean, it goes back to this mantra, which is you can change your business, but you can't change your partners and you can't change your investors. Um, I have a lot of really close friends from high school and you know college, whatever, that I would never start businesses with. And Jake, Rami, and I have really worked on our partnership. You know, um, in a way, working our partnership has taught me how to eventually, I think, you know, work on a marriage or something like that. Because you really do have to be uh, open about the fundamental tenets of what you're doing together, um, and the fundamental tenets of you know what you're trying to build, and the value structures that you guys share. And we we literally work on that. I mean, we've we take uh, what we call our little partner retreat every three four months. We lock ourselves in a cabin somewhere. And we work on our partnership and we work on our business. You know, all the all the things that you can't really work on when you're stuck in the normal flow of things and you're just answering emails or putting out fires. And that has really, I think, made the difference. Uh, from day one, you know, back in 2014, uh, maybe 2015, we, we've in- implemented this practice religiously every three, four months, no matter what's going on. We have to get away and do this. And, uh, you know... I wouldn't say it saved us because we haven't needed saving, you know, even in the hardest of times that we've been very strong together, both uh, personally and professionally, and we continue to be. But uh, I think that it's kept us on this path rather than ever needing to put out major fires. You know, we've always had this sort of headspace and this communication to be able to deal with whatever came up. I think that's really interesting because there's a few people I know who are solo founders of <clears throat> mainly tech companies, but some in other areas too. And I think a lot of solo founders desperately desire a co-founder. And I understand why, but there are websites out there for sort of co-founder dating websites and stuff. And I think, I think to your point, um, you said that the mantra of you can change your business, but it's very, very difficult to change your investors and your, your partners. I think the idea of just sort of finding a, a partner kind of mail order style or off the internet or whatever, I don't think that, 
that works but i also conversely understand the struggle of the solo founder where having that in yeah. your case you've got this three of you right so you've got three of you to, to, to kind of triumvirate to yeah. to bounce ideas off and support each other so i think it's a it's a really interesting challenge for entrepreneurs of all shapes and sizes i don't know how people do it on their own i would have gone crazy um you know it's it's again kind of like this this marriage this partnership where sometimes you know you can't deal with stuff you need somebody else to lead and sometimes you need to lead and you need people to bounce ideas off of and you need that support and uh i just cannot we, we talk about it all the time we, we would have gone crazy if this was just one person uh, the other nice thing about our partnership which is sort of fortuitous is that we've um we've aligned in this in the sense of rami is the head of programming uh, Jake is the head of uh, marketing and communication. And I'm the head of operations and backend. So that's like, you know, any business, no matter what it is, needs product, sales, marketing, and uh, operations. So there's also a really nice delineation. I think the other mistake that a lot of folks make, I think it's great to have partners. I think it's much better to have partners. But I think a lot of pe mistakes that people make in the partnership is A, what I was saying before, which is not being clear. Um, not having a communication style, not practicing the communication, not being clear on your objectives and your values. <clears throat> and the second is not having clear delineation of tasks. There's never a question as to who's handling this. Uh, you know, when, when something comes up, it's very clear whose ball, uh, whose court the ball is in. Um, that, that kind of segues really well into getting into the current setup and you know what 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 the venue looks like feels like who's doing what can you you, you touched on what the three of you are doing can yep. you can you maybe give us an insight into what the venue feels like um what's coming up what attendees should expect and, and maybe what you guys are doing behind the scenes day yeah. to day week to week so the workflow really starts with rami you know when it comes to putting on a show so rami and his team uh we have four really solid talent buyers um across various genres they source and uh, basically procure a show with an agent uh i'm grossly as you know uh simplifying that process but yeah it's 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 not to uh, sort of minimize the work they do it takes a lot of experience and effort and uh Quite honestly, I mean, I think talent buying is one of the hardest jobs there is out there because there's no school for it or being an agent, uh, you know, there's no school for it. And it requires this incredibly unique person that both is left brain, right brain married, where they love the arts and they're constantly scouring new music. Um, but they also know how to structure a deal because that's what it really is. Every time you uh, bring on a new artist, you're, you're putting a deal on for the firm, for the books. Uh, I, I think being an, an okay talent buyer agent is not that difficult, but to be a really good one is really really hard and I think that what you say about the left brain right brain thing is, right. is absolutely correct I mean you know the way I think about it with my investment management background is that each talent buyer has a portfolio you know and each agent has a portfolio and uh, for the talent buyer you're looking at your calendar and that's your portfolio and you have to you have limited time and resources you have uh, limited space and you have to figure out the best way in order to achieve your, your objectives and our objective has always been how do you bring on enough artists of different backgrounds to be able to bring an audience of different backgrounds to create a truly sort of nurturing experimental culturally relevant venue while still staying in business and paying your staff what they need to get paid um 
creating, uh, paying the artists what they need to get paid. You know, I think a lot of people sneer at business as sort of the thing that's the death knell of culture or of independent music. And certainly it feels that way and you're not wrong in thinking that way when all these corporations and developers and such are putting music out of business. But business is ultimately a tool and I think that for us it's it's trying to, you know, even, even our talent buyers are business-minded or have to be because they need to make sure that the place is open in a year, in five years, in 10 years. And so uh, it's it's an impossible task and I think very few people are up for it. So anyway, that's sort of the head of the snake. And then uh, the ball is sort of in uh, Jake's court, his team's court. We've got uh, four, soon to be maybe five incredible uh, folks on the marketing and communication side thinking about branding, thinking about uh, how do you communicate our vision both to the press as well as um, you know overall sort of selling the business to the press as well as getting uh, our shows in the press and uh, communicating that to audiences. So that's our marketing and sales channel. And then it comes down to my team uh, where we handle all of the you know, thinking about structuring the contracts, although again, the talent buyers have to do a lot of this up front, but at least making sure those contracts are correct, doing the accounting, doing the analytics, um, taking, making sure HR is correct, making sure that the team, uh, again, is properly trained, happy in place, um, working with our general manager, working with our uh, production team, making sure that, you know, the the space is going to be up and running correctly. It's a, it's a, big business but sort of it's it's a it's a big endeavor and i think that the way that we do it with popgun in-house again you know what i just explained in terms of rami and jake their efforts it's really sort of popgun if you think about it that way and then how that then gets parlayed to the venue team which is the general manager the assistant general manager the bartenders coach check door staff security team uh the production team the technical team uh that's you know then that's sort of the the, the other element of all this where we haven't even touched on. But, you know, all in all, this place employs about 150 people already and we've been open for six months. So it's, uh, you know, all the groundwork that we did helped us get up and up and running really quickly because all the um, the foundation was in place. Did you learn a lot of that from the Glasslands experience or was there was there that kind of unknown layer that only presented itself after opening night? No, 100%. I mean, um, we learned a lot after opening night, certainly, but, you know, Jake and Rami did an incredible job running Glasslands, and I think that they learned so many lessons, and they evolved, but they really, uh, they learned everything there. That and the fact that Popgun, again, did shows all over the city in addition to Glasslands. I mean, the guys were doing something like, by the end of it, 400 to 425 shows a year at Glasslands, and then another 60 to 100 shows a year as Popgun around the city. So you also learn best and worst practices when you work in other people's venues. And that's given us also a lot of insight into how we want to do things. Uh, I wanted to take maybe a a step back. Um, We touched on it earlier when you talked about getting the venue set up in in New York and how the city's changed and and that you've lived in here in Williamsburg for for quite a while. Is it nearly nearly 10 years, right? Mm -hmm. Um, What's your take on the New York nightlife scene and maybe the broader arts and culture scene in the the, maybe the past five to 10 years that you've been in this area? And how do you think think things are going to change in the next couple of years? Sure. Yeah, I think it's really easy when you're getting older, wherever you are, to be all gloom and doom about what's happening in music and art. There was actually a really interesting study that came out recently that tracked Spotify data to see, okay, you know, at any given age point, what's the kind of music you're listening to and how old were you when that stuff came out? And it's like most of us are kind of stunted to the to to the taste that we had when we were in our teens or 20s. 
I think that's what makes people very often say that, well, today sucks, yesterday was awesome. Um, so I think that said, there's a lot of really amazing things that are happening. I mean, there's this proliferation of uh, music listening across genres. And I think that's, again, thanks to the internet. People are no longer like, okay, you know, I'm a Wall Street guy living in a financial district. I listen to this music. I'm an Upper East Side guy. I listen to this music. I'm a Harlem guy. I listen to this music. Or, you know, I'm a downtown person. I listen to this music. It's, okay, you know what? My identity can be crafted completely independently to sort of my periphery just based on what I want to find and and pull up on the internet so you have people listening to many more genres of music and uh people creating many more undefinable genres of music that along with the incredibly uh it's much cheaper to create music uh there's this proliferation of stuff that's just happening you know in bedrooms that is eventually going to take off and i think that there's a lot of creativity there also mixing electronic and analog music uh, instruments and sounds and there's a lot of stuff i mean you know, you see a drummer on stage and instead of a hi-hat, they have a laptop and you're kind of like, you know, that to me is kind of mind-blowing. <clears throat> but it's commonplace these days. You have a lot of different things going on. So I think the state of creativity is still strong. Um, how that sort of uh, dovetails into the physical music scene, I think there's there's good and bad things. I mean, we touched upon one of the bad things, which is that a lot of the creative endeavors are struggling to survive uh, as terms of music venues and, and, and areas where artists can live, thrive, and perform. Again, those, that, that holy trinity of uh, that fundamental sort of ecosystem for cultural change is in jeopardy. So the, the creativity, while it's still happening, it's maybe not happening as much as it was in New York as it used to be. Artists are either moving out uh, to other cheaper markets, um, or they are finding, um, you know, or, or they're, they're creating art in their bedrooms and they're not necessarily performing or practicing with other people. And that's a real concern. Uh, the concern of mine specifically is that, you know, is music, live music going to disappear from New York? No. But are we going to be able to showcase local artists any given day of the week uh, because they live here and they perform here? Are we going to have that community of people that knows each other? That's that's in jeopardy, in serious jeopardy. And I think that, you know, we have an interesting moment right now where I think that the city is sort of waking up and listening to that uh, in terms of the powers that be. And, uh, you know, it's hard to it's hard to combat market forces. You know, rent will go up and there's very little that we can do about that in our capitalist nation. But I think that there are steps that need to be taken and are we've seen signs of baby steps being taken anyway where... Uh, that fundamental ecosystem needs to be preserved. I think what you say about the space to practice is particularly interesting. I think the the performance side is kind of well documented and well known around. You've mentioned twenty percent of venue closures yeah. each year, uh, and it's it's definitely a problem. But I think the practice side is something maybe people underestimate, and I think our, our need to belong and the fact that we're just sitting behind our laptops in, in a bedroom making music it's it's fine but we also have a, a need to belong and to share and to practice with others and to learn more i think that that feels like a a kind of bigger issue may i don't i don't know how how it's going to get fixed but it feels like something that, that really needs addressing yeah i mean i think every prong in this in this fundamental ecosystem i keep harping on is in jeopardy and yeah it's you know you need artists need to live they need to be able to rehearse and they need to be able to perform rents are going up so they are finding it hard to live 
uh, they're having to move further and further away from Manhattan, which means now they are it's taking them hard, uh, longer and longer to get to their day jobs, or they maybe don't have day jobs, and now they can't support themselves, and that's why people are moving out of the city rather than farther away from the epicenters. Um, and the second practice spaces, yeah, it's a huge deal. The uh, the cost of practice spaces is going up. Um, you know, if you look at it and you say, well, you know, number for number, uh, the volume of practice spaces has stayed steady. And I don't know the statistics, but it feels like that might be true. But it's only true because, if it's true, it's only true because the larger well-funded studios and uh, well-funded sort of corporate entities are able to afford these ritzier uh, practice spaces. So. I've seen a lot of business plans and pitches for fancier and fancier practice spaces because they're trying to capture uh, a certain market that's, you know, getting its money from Spotify, that's getting its money from ads or venture-backed companies or starting to see more um, uh, dollar signs and live music. But that's all happening at a much larger, at a, at a higher scale and a higher echelon than that fundamental ecosystem. And that's, again, what I think is most threatened right now. It's hard to find cheap practice spaces. It's hard to find cheap places to live. It's hard to find cheap places to perform. Um, and I think that without that, you know, you asked me what people can expect from this city. I think that if we don't address those three pillars, we're going to have a city where uh, you're going to see a lot of music, but it's going to be only people that are touring through here who have otherwise established themselves to at least some degree. And that experimental nature of New York City, that fabric is going to be, you know, worn away. I'd be really interested to get your take on kind of how that ties into real estate more broadly. Maybe it's just from me living in Manhattan and, and kind of being fascinated by the the density and the size and scale of the real estate here, but I found it a really interesting area to explore. Um, do you think developers are going to be looking at more kind of cultural spaces, more pop-up spaces? Are they going to want more security? Are they going to want longer leases? I mean, it kind of ties into the kind of workspace, we work kind of side of things as well. What, what's your experience been from talking to a lot of developers and, and landlords when you, were, when you were looking for a space? What, what, what do you think uh, is going to happen there? Yeah, I think there's... Developers have started seeing dollar signs in Brooklyn, and I think a lot of that comes from various, even loosely culturally associated sort of ventures. Um, certainly they're seeing there's a demand for that, but anytime you bring in uh, a developer of any scale, you know, the businesses that we're talking about aren't really going to get them the rents that they want. So I think that there's developers are still trying to figure this out, but there's still sort of a mismatch between the businesses they want to purport housing and supporting and the businesses that they are allowing that the businesses that can afford their spaces. Um, so as a result, you're seeing this trend in sort of mixed use development where they want to have oh, a gallery and uh, Whole Foods and uh, all this and a restaurant and, uh, you know, a practice space or a music venue in the ground floor of some sort of uh, otherwise not high rise, but otherwise some sort of development. And uh, the reality is a lot harder because, um, you know, either it end up being rather tasteless or it'll end up being that they're you know, they have to scrap that plan altogether and they have to go something that's more tried and tested and commercial. Um, I think that there are some developers out there that are really trying to crack that nut and figuring it out, but very few and far between are there developers who are patient and, um, you know, otherwise will forego profits for a cultural vision. 
I, th- I think that ties into kind of placemaking, right? So that that kind of term gets banded around a lot, but it's a lot easier said than done to to really make a place rather than just putting a cafe in in, a, in the ground floor of a high rise. It is, and I think that this actually even ties back to our original conversation on investors, which is that they there is going to be hard pressed to find investors that share that vision. I mean, real estate is a competitive investment field. And if you want to be able to raise uh, investment dollars, you're, you have to sort of try to sell a certain rate of return. And I think that as of now, the way that our cultural institutions at this, again, this very sort of independent level are structured, they, most of them cannot offer that kind of return. Um, I wanted to switch lanes a little bit just before we finish up. Um, going back to elsewhere, what's what's coming up in the next few months that's got you personally really excited? What are you looking forward to? There's so much. I mean, part of the joy there is that there's so much more happening than I even know about. Um, there's artists I've never heard of. There's sounds I've I've never heard. And I can just you know, come out from my crypt, the office in the basement at, at any given hour. I'm working at whatever. If I'm working at seven o'clock, 10 o'clock, midnight, there was just some amazing band happening um, or playing there. Um, you know, we've got, I'm personally right now still trying to finish up the roof and open up the rooftop for the summer. I'm very excited about that, what that means in terms of people being able to come to the venue on a Friday night and hang out all night and come see an early show. There's a a restaurant coming into the front of the venue that's going to be run by, as of now, uh, Mission Chinese. I'm very excited to have them there. I think that they have a strong... uh, we have a very similar cultural ethos and they, uh, there's a lot of creativity and heart and soul behind what they're trying to do. And I think that our audience is going to love that. So, you know, I'm excited for folks to be able to come there uh, at five o'clock, have a coffee, have a have a drink in our loft bar space for happy hour. Go grab a bite at Mission Chinese. Come check out the early act in any of our rooms, the zone one or the hall. Be able to stick around for the late night club night dance party. You can stay there till 4 a.m. and then we'll stop serving alcohol, but then you stay there till 6 a.m., 8 a.m. You have a bite to eat in the loft. We have grilled cheese. We have little snacks and nibbles up there and you can go back to Mission Chinese and then our roof opens up at 8 a.m. and you don't have to leave again for another day, day and a half. So, you know, I'm excited for people to be able to really utilize this space as this cultural breeding ground where we have all these amazing artists where we can sort of, you know, our staff is friendly, our uh, our audience is friendly, and you can make a weekend of it. And that to me is like the, the ultimate dream is just to be able to hang out there all weekend and see familiar faces and uh, introduce them to all sorts of great new music. Uh, so if we, if we go back, I don't know how far back you're going to have to go, but uh, could you maybe share one, possibly two, of your most memorable live experiences, on a, whether it's through elsewhere, through Glasslands, or, or something else another time in your life? Sure. Um, well, one of the most was definitely my first concert ever. I mean, Brian Adams, 1991. Uh, I'm in a massive field of thousands of people at a rock concert, and uh, I'm with my uncle, and I'm, I'm sitting on his shoulders uh, trying to see this concert from the back, you know, I was actually there with both my uncles, but my dad's two younger brothers. They're both terrified of my father being the older, uh, uh, you know, staunch, uh, uh, big man of the house sort of thing. And uh, so I'm with them. I'm sitting on their shoulders and uh, we're, we're standing out in the back because, you know, nothing's, God forbid, something had happened to big brother's son. And uh, all of a sudden we're noticing there's this little like mini stage behind us with a little walkway from the main stage. And we're like, I wonder why this is here. Uh, it's probably nothing. 
and then for the encore brian adam comes on and he uh runs from the main stage all the way to the backstage that we're standing right next to and this sea of thousands of people all of a sudden turns and is like charging towards us down this battlefield and we all get trampled and separated and it was just it was just the best thing a four-year-old could ask for (laughs) that was a hell of a show um and then recently, I mean, again, you know, the eclecticism of elsewhere, we just had a show with Jonathan Tobin, who has been running this incredible uh, monthly or otherwise sort of periodical dance party called Soul Clap. And, uh, you know, there's there's old soul records that he spins and there's dancers, there's a dance competition. And it's just this really awesome, eclectic community of folks that have been around the scene for a long time. Um, all ages and all sort of walks of uh, backgrounds and walks of life. And uh, this series that we've been holding at Elsewhere, we've been doing that, but we've also been introducing, or he's been sort of featuring along with us, um, other bigger artists that play before him. So again, this early show, late show concept that we have at Elsewhere and also the guys had at Glasslands. And one of the early shows that he did before the Soul Club party was the Sundra Orchestra. And uh, those guys have been around for 113 some odd years. Um the leader of the ensemble is 90-something years old and has been leading the ensemble for 60 years. And again, it's this incredible expression of uh, music that's been evolving over, over the decades. And, you know, they're all dressed up in, in, in the whole Afrofuturism movement. Um, they're dressed up in, in sort of just, just this, this cosmic sort of um, extravagant and still sort of culturally rooted uh, a dress and they're playing music that has this intensity of uh, this this sort of uh, fire of rebellion and it's still virtuosic it's still relevant today um, people of all ages and backgrounds again were coming and it was just this this magical um, feeling that you get when you're at these at, at these sort of um, at these concerts that accomplish the sort of highest echelon of music which is cultural expression virtuosity it's uh, a community it's otherworldly it's transportive it's expressive it's rebellious and yet it, it's accepted and you know you sort of to me it was this this microcosm of uh what it, what everything that music is about everything that music will continue to be this kernel the spark that i think music embodies throughout the ages no matter what the sound is and i think again you know you're asking me uh why i'm still sort of or how or why I'm still sort of excited about music in this day and age is because I think that spark is still alive, that spark of rebellion, that spark of expression, you know, and as much as our business has had to evolve and musicians have, have to have had to evolve, this is a tradition that's as old as the campfire, you know, it's, uh, it's uh, losing yourself in, in this sort of communal thing that's happening. And I think that, you know, that's never going to go away. Join us next time for another edition of Tickets. You can subscribe via Apple Podcasts and Stitcher or listen back through SoundCloud and Acast. Tickets is an HBO production. Find out more at hbo.com. <laughs>